You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening. Welcome to our Jewish Matters podcast. And tonight we're talking about Jewish spirituality and a deeper look at reality, Kabbalah 101. So a number of years ago, I was in Jerusalem and a friend of mine reached out to me and he said, there's someone I think you should meet. I was on a visit from the States and he knew I had an interest in Kabbalah. I'd taken some Kabbalah courses in university and had studied some Kabbalistic ideas, but not really. So he said, you got to meet this guy. I said, sure, I'm open to it. I'm always up for a good adventure. And he said, what are you doing at 1 a.m. on Thursday night? And I thought, now it really gets interesting. So he gave me directions. Go to Machane Yehuda, which back then was dead at night, except for the rats running around. He said, go through, turn right, then turn left. On the right, you'll see the fifth building down on the street. Go around the back and go in. So I didn't quite know what to expect. I thought maybe I'd find an old sage uh, bent over a book with a bare uh, light bulb hanging from the ceiling. And I go around the building, walk in the back door, open up the door, and hear this roar of people studying, bright lights, and a room packed full of men in beards studying. And this is at one in the morning. So this was my first introduction to what was the world of uh, Kabbalah academies, Kabbalah schools, schools of studying Kabbalah. And I had been in Jerusalem studying for three years, and I never even knew about this world. So I met there Rabbi Yitzchak Schwartz, who would go on to become my teacher for the next 15 or so years. While went, after I went back to New York, we studied telepathically every week, uh, actually through Skype at the time, uh, not telepathically. But, um, and with him, I got to get a little glimpse into this world. So what is Kabbalah? If we describe Torah as a guidebook for life to tell us how to serve the Almighty, Kabbalah, we would say, is a second step into trying to understand the realm of the spiritual, the realm of the Almighty, instead of just understanding how to serve God and what to do in the world. So what do we mean by that? What do we mean understanding? So the idea is that there is a deeper dimension to life and to reality, to the world. In a sense, just like we have a divine soul. uh, So if you look at a person, you see them, you see them physically, you see their body, you see who they are. Yet we know that's not them. We know there's more. And sure enough, there's the divine soul, which we've talked about. We had a whole series about that. So, too, for the world. We look at the world, we see the physical world, we see the trees, we see the, uh, the sun, we see the stars, and yet we know that there is a deeper dimension. So, in a sense, the soul of the world is the divine. Except there's a dilemma that we cannot experience God. So, the task is to try and unveil the divine in the world. And so the Kabbalah is coming one 
step closer to trying to understand that. The analogy you could give is that now we know from quantum physics that you look at a table and the table has, is hard, yet we know that the table is uh, mostly composed of empty space. And even that which matter which is composing the table, the electrons uh, in the atom are either a wave or a particle. We don't even know which one they are. And today I just read that for the first time they have measured in quantum terms an impact upon a physical object, a movement of a physical object in quantum terms. In other words, the blurring of the lines of that object and its surrounding environment through quantum uh, measurements. Don't understand completely what it is, but just to tell us that even the physical world we see is not really the reality of what the physical world is made of. Now you could say, doesn't matter, right? Doesn't matter if I know what's underneath. I live with what I can see and what I can deal with. And so from a Torah point of view, it certainly does matter because that's our path is to uncover the divine and to uh, once again learn how to serve the Almighty in the world. And so I feel myself and many see that uh, to understand the deeper dimensions of that world, not just to live a godly life, is vital to our own mission. So the question is, are we supposed to learn? about Kabbalah. People have heard, might have heard this idea, not supposed to learn till you're very learned, till you're over a certain age. Now, Kabbalah has become very popular. And it's a word that's brandied about. Hollywood stars supposedly study it. And, but it really started coming more into the forefront of popular culture in post-60s, when people were searching for spirituality. And many young Jews were searching for Eastern uh, for spirituality in Eastern religions. But so it was felt that the world, they and the world, needed to be shown that there's a deeper dimension in Judaism as well, not just the Bible stories you learn in Hebrew school. So what about the warning of not studying it? The Talmud describes the story of four great rabbis, four masters, who entered the orchard, the Pardes. And so what does this mean? Uh, so it said, Pardes, as we will see, is an acronym for a deeper understanding of what's underneath, a spiritual understanding. So it says, Ben-Azai entered the orchard, and he died. And Ben-Zoma went crazy, lost his mind. Acher, the other one, became a heretic. And only Rabbi Akiva, who went in in peace, left in peace. So the Talmud does warn us about the dangers of studying Kabbalah. And what is that? It's kind of like the idea that if you would take a beginning skier and push them off a black diamond slope, they'd be in trouble. So the idea is that if one jumps too quickly, uh, to a higher level, at worst, you might think you understand and you don't. At worst, you don't understand, right? You're an undergraduate, you take an advanced graduate course, you don't understand. Uh, more dangerous is you think you understand and you don't. 
And of course, the most dangerous is that you're not ready for the spiritual power of what you're learning. Now, according to some, it's really just the applied Kabbalah, we'll talk some about what that means, that is not allowed to be taught on a general level, but Kabbalistic ideas can be shared at a level that they can be understood. There's also concern that people would go elsewhere if it wasn't shared. And uh, so the idea is that if, you, if someone isn't eating their main course, what do you do? You give them a little dessert to get their appetite, and then you, they eat the main course. So in a sense, the Kabbalah is the dessert. The rest of the Torah is the main course because really the idea of saying that you had to be a student of a certain level in order to study Kabbalah was that you had to be uh, spiritually advanced, you had to be spiritually grounded, you had to have perfected your personality traits. It's said that Rabbi Chaim Vital, the student of the great Ari, came to his, uh, was studying, came to the Ari uh, in Svat in the 1600s to study with him. He said to him, what happens when someone insults you? And he said, well, I get upset. You know, he said, when you have complete deference, when you've let, completely let go of your ego, then come to me. And the assumption was also that they were completely grounded in Torah. However, it seems that if one doesn't understand some of the ideas in Kabbalah, for instance, opening up a prayer book, the Shabbat morning prayer book, the morning service, talks about angels, different dimensions of angels, the seraphim, the burnt in, burning angels, the uh, holy angels, the Chayota Kodesh. So how do you understand even the basic prayer book if we don't have some understanding of these areas? Um, we saw when he spoke about the afterlife that other areas of Torah talk about what one might think are Kabbalistic ideas, the soul, where the soul goes afterwards. Uh, there are other practices, but to really understand those, you need a deeper level of understanding. The Friday night service, uh, there are areas of Jewish practice. The Kabbalat Shabbat was written by the Kabbalists, and it's hard to understand if you don't have some of the basic ideas. And the Lachadodi. Uh, other customs, how we wash our hands in the morning even, is based somewhat on Kabbalistic teachings. So, back to our question. What is the Kabbalah? The Torah is divided into two areas. The written Torah, which is the five books of Moses, and then the rest of the, what's called the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuim, the writings and the, and the prophets and the writings. And then there is the oral Torah, which was given with the written Torah to Moshe. It was transmitted from master to disciple over generations and eventually written down as the Talmud. Now, part of the oral Torah was also the teachings of Kabbalah, except it was only passed down in a very limited way from master to student. And that's why the Talmud says it should not be taught in public. And even when taught to one student, it should only be taught in principles, and the student has to be able to derive the rest uh, for themselves. So the Talmud does tell us uh, that there are two texts in the written Torah that have to do with Kabbalah. 
Mase Breshit and Mase Merkaba, the acts of creation, which is uh, the beginning of Genesis, and Mase Merkaba, the chariot, which is the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, which describes this chariot. Um, and I just studied that chapter. We go through in my morning Talmud class before Talmud, we study a chapter of the prophets every day. We just studied the beginning of Ezekiel. Very hard to understand what's going on. So, uh, but the Talmud tells us that those two texts are Kabbalistic texts. However, uh, the body of Kabbalah was transmitted from master to student. And we have some of the great teachers who we know were part of this transmission. Rabbi Akiva, who we mentioned before. Uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who would go on to write... uh, whose teachings would be written down as the Zohar in the 1300s. And the Zohar is almost known, is almost one could describe it as the Talmud of the Kabbalah. It's the body of teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai encompassing the breadth of Kabbalah. But before that, we should mention that one of the first Kabbalistic books is Sefi Yitzirah, the Book of Formation, attributed to no other than Abraham. And... In the end of the book, it mentions Abraham. Uh, once again, do we know that he, the words are exactly written down according to Abraham? Not necessarily, but the teachings are attributed back to Abraham. And Rabbi Sadia Gaon uh, makes an attribution. And Rabbeinu Bachia, one of the commentaries in the 13th century, says that Rav Chai Gaon, three, four hundred years before him, attributed to Abraham. So that would be the first Kabbalistic work the Zohar in the 1300s being written down. But we also had great rabbinic figures who were Kabbalists, most notably Nachmanides. And then some two, three hundred years later, Rabbi Joseph Caro. And the two of them were some of the greatest halachic rabbis, teachers of Jewish law as well. And this really gave Kabbalah its imprimatur. Um, there were schools that questioned the authenticity or the... Uh, origin of the Kabbalah, but today it's been understood that especially after Rabbi Yosef Karo, the great Ari, Rabbi Isaac Luria, who lived in Sfat in the 1600s, he became the watershed, and through him, much more Kabbalah was revealed. And so these teachings are received teachings, received from master to student, but they were also, we believe, received by these great spiritual minds who received uh, almost... A, uh, a divine insight and brought that into the world. After him, in the late 1700s, the Vilna Gaon, Rabbi Eliyahu of Vilna, who is the, in a sense, the, 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 the leader and the founder of the, what is today known as the Yeshiva movement, he was a Kabbalist. And on the other, on the other side of the Hasidim, the Baal Shem Tov brought Kabbalistic teachings to be much more accessible to the populace. And in fact, a lot of Chabad teachings is really Kabbalah brought into a level that can be understood uh, by the general population. And uh, you could question, so how can that be that they're teaching it? So once again, the ideas can be shared in a way in which they're accessible, but to try and embark on Kabbalistic practices that's something which was warned against, strongly discouraged, and only from those who were initiated by a master. 
And later on, we will talk about meditation, but we are not going to do Kabbalistic meditations. We'll do Jewish meditation, but not the actual Kabbalistic ones. What I'd like to do now is to share a Kabbalistic idea and to make good on my promise of how does this relate to us? How can this speak to our lives and who we are and have us understand a deeper dimension of reality? Before I do, I'd just like to explain this idea of pardes, the four rabbis who entered the orchard. The word for orchard in Hebrew is pardes, but we're told that pardes stands for four levels of understanding. Pshat, simple level. Uh, drush, which is exegetical level. Remez, hints. And sod is the secrets. The letters are actually a different order. Pei, R-D-S. And... Let me give you an example of what would be the four levels of understanding. One of them is in the Torah, when Moshe is born. So it says that uh, uh, his mother saw that he was good and she hid him away for three months. Now, what does it mean, a good child? So we use these four levels of understanding, even in understanding Torah studies, let alone our lives in the world and the spiritual realms. So the simple level, the pshat is, that she saw he was good and she hid him, meant, what is a good child? He didn't cry. She saw that he didn't cry and she was able to hide him, despite the fact that the Egyptians were telling people to throw their baby boys into the Nile River. So she was able to save him in that way, at least for the first three months. The deeper level is, the commentators say, that Moshe was born circumcised. Apparently one in every child, it wasn't a overt miracle necessarily. One in every 30,000 or so uh, men are born circumcised without a foreskin. But the understanding is that in this case it was a sign that Moshe was special and had a special role to play. That's the next level. The sod, the Kabbalistic level of understanding would be that when he was born the light filled with Shekhinah, with the divine light. So this is the metaphysical uh, understanding of what it meant that he, she saw that he was good. And then the light of creation said God saw the light and saw that it was good. So there's a linguistic link, but a deeper spiritual teaching. That's an example of three different levels of understanding of a biblical verse. Mitzvot can have different levels of understanding. The yarmulke we wear. Uh, on the simple level, chat level, Yara Malka means fear of God. Talmud says we cover our head to remember God above us. Some people might view it almost even more basic level. The most basic level is you identify as Jewish. But the more spiritual understanding is, the deeper understanding is, that as we talked about in our talk on the soul, the, according to the Kabbalists, the soul is not within us. The soul is disconnected from us. And our role is to try and, goal is trying to bring the soul back within us so we see life and ourselves, and we see the world through the, 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 the lens of the soul. So the yarmulke is to bring the soul back into us. Why don't women wear, uh, have to wear a head covering? The Talmud says women have an extra dimension of bina, which is considered to be deeper spiritual connection. So perhaps they don't need it as much as men to bring the soul back in. So there's another example of you know, mitzvah that can be understood on different levels. So that's pardes. So let's get to our matter at hand, which is 
like to talk about the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Israel, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. What does it mean to say that God is one? It's the most basic, fundamental statement of Judaism. If you actually think about it, it's not really a prayer, it's a statement. It's a mission statement. But what are we supposed to think about? How are we supposed to understand God is one? So it can be understood on different levels. The more philosophical understanding is God is one means there's one God and not many. Like in the ancient world that believed in polytheism, every uh, force of nature was another divine God, another divine power. So Judaism was saying, no, monotheism is only one source of all. The other, de- the other definition would be one and not subdivided, right? Christianity says there's three parts, in a sense, to the divine. So we believe in only one. So that's the more overt understanding. So what is the more Kabbalistic understanding? So the Kabbalistic understanding can go along these lines. There's a, a term, an expression, a name that the rabbis use to talk about the divine. And it is Hamakom, the place. Now we view the world as being the place of God. We kind of view that the world is here and we're living in this world and every once in a while God comes in. Every once in a while we have a divine inspiration. You watch a sunset, you feel touched, you feel connected, something more. Or every once in a while you go to synagogue or on God is more, you feel God's presence more. Uh, Yom Kippur, you feel something special. So God sometimes comes in, but basically the world is almost God-neutral. This is saying the opposite. Not that the world is the place of God, but that God is the place of the world. So what does it mean God is one? God is not just the unity of all, which is true, but God is the all. And it takes a little reshifting of our mind. And uh, you know, there's an idea that people think, you know, God is up there somewhere, maybe even an old man with a beard. So we have to let go of our child images of what we box God into. Or God is great, like Superman plus. And come to the deeper understanding that our Belief in the Almighty is that Almighty is real. God is reality. So, what are we doing here? How do we fit into the picture? So, according to the Kabbalists, God, there's something, there's a, uh, a dynamic called Tzimtzum, which means that God, in a sense, constricted him, her, itself to leave room for that which is other than God. And so that left room for then the Torah's introduction of creation. And now we understand a little why, you know, the Talmud recognizes the creation story as one of the Kabbalistic texts because, first of all, it's very difficult to understand. And even according to the Kabbalah, Bereshit is not the beginning of creation. It comes before the Bereshit even with this God making room for the world. And so... In doing so, God removed the divine presence from the world, at least overtly for us, but left behind sparks of holiness, 
left behind Kedusha. And so our role in the world is to reclaim those sparks, to bring the spiritual potential back out of the physical world. That's one way we're supposed to look at that dynamic and one way it's supposed to impact us because we're supposed to be seeking to bring godliness into the world. And that's really the path of what the Torah uh, instructs us to do. That's the purpose of the mitzvot. That's the purpose of personal growth, to bring godliness into the world. Now, the, the Hasidic teachers, who are even more rooted in the Kabbalah, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says even stronger, he says that if we look at the world with deeper consciousness, with Chachma, with the Seichel of Chachma, that we, then we can bring out the light in everything in the world. In other words, God removed his presence, but he didn't really, because really we are still within the divine. It's all part of the unity. So if you really have the right lenses on, you can see that light in everything in the world and in the physical world itself. And then that light will shine upon us and bring us closer to the Almighty. Now I realize, realize that I'm kind of presenting a paradox here. Is God everything? Or did God remove himself and leave room for us? Which one is it? So it, in a sense, it's really both. And this is what the Nefesh Chaim says. Uh, Rabbi Chaim Volozhin, in his book, uh, The Soul of Life, and he says this, he says, from our perspective, and Kabbalists before him have said this, really from our perspective, the divine is beyond this dimension. We have to dig deeper and reach deeper and see the light through the light lenses to bring it out of the physical world. And there is separateness between the godly and the impure. Uh, and that's the concept of, when we talk about God's king, it's hard concept for us to relate to. We don't have kings today, but it means God's separateness from the world and yet our role to try and bring God into the world. The philosophers talked about, called this transcendence and imminence. Transcendence, God is transcends beyond the world. Imminence is God's presence in the world. And next week when we talk about the 10 spherot, the 10 divine qualities, we'll talk about how that light is filtered into the world. But what... Uh, of Chaim Velazhin says is that from our point of view God removed himself and we bring divinity back into the physical world. But from the divine perspective really it's all still part of the one unity. And that's a little hard to wrap our heads around and maybe that's why Acher became a heretic because thinking about it too much can lead to spiritual, physical, moral absurdities. So we're not supposed to live in that reality. We're supposed to live in the reality of separation of the physical and the spiritual and of sanctifying the, the physical um, to bring more godliness into the world. And one last idea would be this, that the Torah enjoins us also to treat, be like God, to be like the divine. So it tells us what does that mean in, in terms of hamakom, God being the place? Just like God made room within himself or herself for the other, so we too should strive to make room within ourselves for the other.
by reaching out to another person, by truly empathizing with what they're going through, and by making the space for them to really be present in our lives. And that's another idea of how we can take Kabbalistic teachings and then make it part of our worldview and then make it part of who we are as a person and bring us closer towards godliness itself. So, what have we gotten? What have we seen? Kabbalah is the oral teaching, part of the oral teachings, but it was the hidden teachings, the Nistar. It was only taught to select students, generation through generation, written down as the Zohar in the 1300s, uh, transmitted throughout the generations. There is an idea in more recent times and different periods of history that the populace needed some of these deeper spiritual Kabbalistic ideas to be more spiritually inspired and to feel closer to the Almighty. So they have been taught more of recently. Some teachers say that it's really only the practice Kabbalah that is forbidden to share. But the ideas of Kabbalah we can share. And we talked about Pardes, the orchard, the four levels of understanding of looking at the world from a physical, material, simple one to a deeper, spiritual uh, one of depth. And I will leave you here. Uh, oh, and, and our understanding of Shema, which is that God's unity is the idea that God is the place of the world, that God is the unity of everything. And we are, in a sense, subsumed within that. So therefore, we are connected to the divine, even though there is a veil over our ability to connect and to see the divine. But if we work at it, we can merit to connect to some dimensions of it. And we'll talk about that next week. And I'd like to leave you with one story. The story is from Rabbi David Aaron. And if you're looking for more books on Kabbalah, I would recommend Rabbi David Aaron as a starting place. Uh, he's got a book on Kabbalah, uh, one called Seeing God, and one called uh, God-Powered Life. Those three would be a good starting place. So he describes his first experience of reaching out to a Kabbalistic teacher. So he was curious. He wanted to know more. More than curious. He wanted to seek. And so he was sent to the Kabbalistic Academy, not the same one I went to, uh, in the old city of Jerusalem. And he walks in, nervous, intimidated, but nevertheless walks in. It says, if you're too bashful, you can't be a student, you can't really learn. And so he walks up to, he sees the master at the front and people motion him to go, go, go to the front. So he goes up to the master and the master looks at him with these deep piercing eyes and he takes an apple and extends it. And David Aaron, as a young man, extends his hand to grab the apple. The rabbi takes the apple away. And he thought, that's strange. You know, what's going on? So he extends the apple again. And he reaches again. And the apple's taken away again. And at this point, he's like, forget this. I don't know what he's doing, but I don't like it. Turns around to walk out. And as he's walking out, one of the students stops him, turns him around, brings him back up, takes his hand, and goes like this. And then the Kabbalistic master takes the apple and puts it into his hand. 
And the lesson he needed to learn was Kabbalah, the word itself, Kabbalah means to receive. The lesson was that you can only start to really be touched by it if you're ready to receive, if you're ready to be open. And Torah study, and particularly Kabbalah, is not some academic discipline that you study in order to gain knowledge. It's something that we learn in order to do, to try and live, and to try and uh, impact upon our life and bring us closer to the divine. Have a good evening, everyone. Next week, we will talk about the ten spherot, the divine energies, and how, if God is transcendent, is beyond this world, how can we connect to the divine? And what is that path? Uh, have a good evening.